Okay, um, we're starting First Peter, so while I'm sort of sassing, you can open your Bibles. <clears throat> you find First Peter towards the end of your Bibles. Uh, if you get right to the back, you're at Revelation, and then if you work your way back a tiny little bit, through John, you'll find 2 Peter and then 1 Peter. A few minutes. Okay, so as I said, we're starting a new series today. Um, it's a New Testament doc- document. It's written by one of Jesus' disciples uh, named Peter, and he's perhaps maybe one of the best known disciples, I would say. Um, some church traditions hold him as sort of the leader of the early church, like the one. Um, and he was certainly one of those first sort of 12 disciples who witnessed Jesus' life um, and his death and his resurrection. Despite this impressive CV, he's also kind of a, a disciple we can really identify with because he didn't always get it right. He wasn't always perfect. He was kind of really, he was the kind of impulsive one. He made massive declarations of, I will never do that, and I will do this. And yet when it comes down to it, when he's really under pressure, he kind of cracked. And we see him being faithless, and we saw him um, under pressure, doubting, and even denying that he knew Jesus. Um, And so I think that's something we can really relate to, because we all crack, don't we? If we're honest, there's certain situations where we're standing there and we know we could say something and we just don't. We freeze in that moment. But the really encouraging thing about Peter is that he really knew that reality, that when he's faithless, God still remained faithful to him. Um, And our series is called Real Faith for Real Life. That's the kind of title that we've chosen for this series on First Peter. And the kind of real life thing works on more than one level. Because I don't know about you, but I've sometimes heard speakers, and when they make a call for people to come to Jesus, they can sometimes give a really rose-tinted view of what that is going to be like. I kind of almost come to him now, And all your problems will be solved. And yet the reality of that is that it doesn't happen. In fact, many of us know quite the opposite. That when we come to Jesus, we're suddenly faced with really difficult times, dark times. And we're left then with a feeling of doubt. You know, perhaps God doesn't actually love me. Or perhaps I'm not a Christian. Because my life doesn't seem to be going that great. You know, perhaps something is going on here and I need to figure it out. But that kind of gospel leaves out the important bits, doesn't it? It leaves out words of Jesus when he was speaking to his disciples about his leaving, that actually their lives were going to be tough. He spoke to them about in in their life they were going to have many troubles. He never said for a minute, your life's going to be easy peasy from now on. And he said to them, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He was getting them ready 
for a difficult future. And in fact, he said to people, come, follow me, pick up your cross. In other words, come, follow me and potentially die. Be ready to do that. The reality of our lives is that we're not free from pain and suffering. Real life actually needs real faith. Otherwise, we just end up kind of lost and rejecting this message that we've been given. And rightfully so, because this message is not true. If we've been promised something and we don't get it, we're left thinking, oh, what happened there? But in it, we can miss the real gospel of what Jesus offers us. And once we've taken off our kind of rose-tinted glasses, that's not enough, is it? It's not enough to just sit there and just go, life is tough, deal with it. That's not enough. Peter, in his book, is encouraging us to put on something else. To kind of, we could say, some faith-filled glasses. We're going to see life differently. It's not that it's without suffering and pain and difficulties. But we're going to see a much, much bigger picture. We're going to see the plans and the purposes of God's heart and his heart for us and the world. And in that, we see something that Peter says, even angels longed to see. They really wanted to see what us guys sitting here have the privilege of seeing. Because when we pick up the Bible, we know what happens. We know about Jesus. We know about the future. We've been told. We can see stuff that other people long to see. So Peter knows Christians that their lives are tough. He knows the reality. And he's encouraging his readers to have real faith that impacts on their thinking and their actions and their character. Well, let's just pause a minute. We're going to pray that as we study First Peter over the next few weeks, that that becomes a reality for us, that we see things as they really are, and we have real faith for real life. Let's just pray. Father, we pray that as we study your word, your spirit would teach us and encourage us to see a reality much more clearly. We pray that you would correct our false thinking and enable us to know the truth of our reality in Jesus. Father, help us as we study this passage today to see things afresh. If we've been Christians for years or if we're just learning for the first time, may you be revealing things to us by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's read the first bit then. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by his blood. 
Grace and peace to be yours in abundance. Okay. So we see at the beginning of the letter, Peter starts with his name. And it's a bit more like a memo. How we would start a memo anyway. Because if you remember, they're kind of scrolls. If, you, if your name was at the end, he'd be for hours. You'd be, get to the end, you have to go right back to the beginning. So his name comes right at the start. And here we're told that Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. What does it say? An apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle simply means someone who's chosen and sent with a message. So, nice and simple. Jesus chose 12 people, he appointed them, and then he sent them. And Peter is obviously one of those. So we better pay attention to what he says. Who is he writing to? We've got all these kind of places named. He's, ne- he's writing to an abundance of churches scattered around. Uh, not just to one. And it's a, a letter that would be circulated. So it would be passed from church to church. The guy would go and they would read it. And, uh, and now we can read it. So that's good. Um, so... And he doesn't address these people as Christians, but rather he addresses them by who they are in Jesus. So if you notice in verse 1, the first thing he says is to God's elect. That's quite a big word. Uh, But we can just use the word chosen. They have been handpicked by the Father. So if you imagine that we're here today and we get chosen for a team... Some of us will be thinking, I am going to get chosen last. And that was always my experience at school. I was always chosen last, totally rubbish at school, absolutely hated it. We'd forge letters, anything to get out of it, in fact. Um, I would always be last. And yet each of us in this room has been chosen. It's quite amazing, isn't it? We have chosen. Me? I've never chosen for anything. We've been hand-picked. And it says here that um, if you look in verse 2 who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, that kind of foreknowledge, massive word, let's not worry about it too much. But if you can imagine, before God even created, before that moment, before you were even a twinkle, God had chosen you. And not in a kind of, ooh, I know that person's going to be quite nice, I'd like to have them but rather fully knowing exactly what you are going to be like in your life. Fully knowing that you, at some point, are going to reject him. Fully knowing all those things we would rather nobody knew about. And yet with that foreknowledge, he chose you. And he chose you fully knowing what it would cost to do so. That it would actually cost... His, the blood of his only son. So if you can imagine fully knowing exactly what all of us are like in this room, fully knowing exactly what we would be like, that we would reject him, that we wouldn't be interested, that we would go our own way. Fully knowing all of that, he still chose to create us out of love. And fully knowing what it would cost in the end to do that. And it says here, down the bottom, God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, so that's why he chose us, that we could 
be back in line uh, with Jesus, following God, knowing him fully, and the sprinkling by his blood. Now, don't panic by the sprinkling of blood. Front rows are a bit worried. (laughs) This is alluding, of course, to Old Testament practices where God had said that an animal could be used as a substitute for a person's sins. So in that beautiful picture of the animal getting killed, which was horrific, the person themselves could see what they really deserved, which was death. But ultimately, this was pointing, of course, to something much bigger, to Jesus' death in our place. And then he finishes this off with grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, what an understatement. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace, God giving us what we don't deserve. Peace with God. Um, In the book of Romans, another writer writes this. He says, no one, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and there is no one who seeks God. Now, I don't know about you, but I am in the no one because that's pretty inclusive. Actually, none of us in this room are righteous and none of us understood and none of us sought God. It was his total initiative to seek us, to to change our hearts, that we would be even slightly interested in knowing him. And that's why Paul says in somewhere else that we are saved by grace completely. None of us can say, actually, God picked me because I was quite nice. No, that's never going to happen. And that is, of course, what's totally unique about Christianity, isn't it? Everything else is about what we would do or how we would act or what we have done or what we will do. Christianity is completely on its head. It's not about us. It's about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. And that's amazingly freeing for us, because no longer is this weight and pressure bearing down on us of, I am not good enough, I am so rubbish, oh, does God really love me? I'm not really sure, maybe my life's a bit of a mess because I'm not very nice. Actually, no. God loves us with a passion. And we need to remember that. Okay, so what else does he say about the people he's writing to? If you go back to verse 1, after the word elect, you'll see the word strangers. Or you could translate it as aliens that are scattered. And this made me think of, um, I don't know if you've ever seen like the 144,000, or if you've seen heroes, they're living among us. And this is us, isn't it? And these guys he was writing to, although some of them would have been scattered from their homes, many of them were just in the same village that they'd grown up in, and they'd been in there for years. So how on earth are they strangers and aliens? Well, Peter wants them to see that now they have been, and we'll come on to it later, reborn, that they are aliens where they are. They are in a temporary home, as it were. They're temporary residents of this world. And this is not their permanent home. Their true home, of course, and ours, is not here. 
And often, we get really confused about that. I know I do. The more time I spend in one place, the more difficult that is for me to remember I'm in a temporary place. This is not my ultimate home. I know that when I was a student and I lived there temporarily, it was easy for me to kind of do life and not get caught up. And when I lived abroad for a few years, it was easy for me to do life, not get caught up in in kind of what clothes I was wearing or how much stuff I had. But the more I live here in Southampton, the longer I live here, the harder it is for me to think this is not my real home. This is not really where I am. Because, you know, I get a mortgage and I start that and we buy things for the house and suddenly that becomes quite important to me. But we need to keep reminding ourselves that this is not our true home. Okay, let's read the next bit. We're going to read right through 3 to 12. It's quite a long bit. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined by fire, may be proven genuine and may result in the praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Okay, so he's getting going now. He's getting excited. And there's a further clue in here as to what these people that uh, Peter is writing to are like. If you look in verse 6, this is kind of our key-ish verse, the key verse. You'll see it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have to suffer um, suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Buried in the midst of this kind of praise and rejoicing, we find this phrase, suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And Peter doesn't specify what these trials are. But um, if you do a bit of history, you kind of nosy around a bit, you'll see that uh, most people say Peter was living at a really difficult time to be a Christian. In fact, if you could avoid it, you didn't want to be one. Okay? 
Now, it's a time when Nero was um, emperor. He was cruel. He used the Christians as scapegoats uh, for his mistakes. Uh, The kind of stuff he did was he regularly threw them to wild beasts and he burnt their smeared bodies as tortures. It wasn't a great time to live. And Peter knew what it was to be under trial. And he wrote to these Christians to encourage them to stay obedient to Christ, to keep trusting, even when faced with potentially such horrific trials. And Peter brings comfort, for he knows what it is to fail. If you remember, he knows what it is to crack under pressure. But also, he knows what it's like to be held securely by God. So the stuff he's just spoken about, he really knows that for himself. And as we consider the trials of our brothers and sisters around the world, it's interesting, isn't it? That Peter here is very interested in their trials, even though he's never met them and he doesn't potentially know them. The chances are that Nero's campaign never reached these guys. Their guys in the distant bits of Rome never really felt the full impact of what was going on in Rome. But Peter still acknowledges their suffering and their trials. He wants them to reflect in a way that really uh, reflects their kind of citizenship in heaven. And in our lives, there can be all sorts of trials, can't there? If we think about it, it could be a physical trial that we're suffering, some kind of illness or disability. It could be a financial trial that actually we can't seem to get a handle on our credit card or our mortgage repayments are way over our heads and we're not sure what to do. It could be relational, that we're really feeling the tensions in our family. It could be problems with friends or co-workers. It could be that our children are just running wild and we're not quite sure how we got into the state and we're not sure what to do. And it sometimes, it can be a spiritual trial, that we're not sure quite where God is anymore. We're not sure we can feel him, and that we can't see him, and we're not really sure. And these trials are full of grief. They make us feel immense loss as something that could have been, but isn't. So, how should we respond? Well, firstly, we could go on a big whinge-a-thon and we could compare our lives with those around us. Wish we had those parents, then life would be great. Or wish we lived in that place. Or if we had that job. Or if I just had those brains. Or if I just had that partner. Or if I just had actually their children because they seem very normal. (laughs) We could respond by trying to hide in our grief. We could try and dampen it so we could uh, say, well, I'm going to watch endless episodes of changing rooms and grand designs. I'm going to hide myself in there. And when I feel anxious at night, I'm going to get up and I'll listen to the radio, make myself a cup of tea or watch TV. And we all do it. I do it. Or we could lose ourselves in anxiety. We could give in. We could decide, actually, this isn't working for me. I'm going to go and do my own thing. But Peter offers a different response. Look at what he says in verse 6. 
He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Now, before you panic, he's not saying you rejoice in your suffering. That would be crazy. He's not saying that. He's referring to what he's written above. So let's go back to verse 3, because this is what he's saying we should rejoice in our lives. Maybe we've got some trials, but let's look at the bigger picture. Firstly, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. Despite ourselves, God has not rejected us. He has not given us what we deserve. Secondly, it says that we have new birth. He has given us a new start. We've started again. And our new birth is not just going to end. Death is not the end for us. But we've got an eternity mapped out for us. Thirdly, it says a living hope. And Peter really knows this. He has seen Jesus alive, walking about, eating, talking. He is our testimony that it's true. If Jesus rose, then everything he promised is also true. Verse 4, he says, and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. An inheritance, and that's not just, uh, you know, some belongings. This is God. We are in his inheritance and he is ours. And we are continually shielded by God. And this isn't uh, just any old shield. This is the power of God that rose Jesus from the dead. And it protects us. We are shielded. So whatever happens, we are ultimately safe. That's why, um, you know, Paul goes on about nothing can separate me from the love of God. Well, of course it can't, because God is the one shielding us with his love. We're not going to get separated. The things that could separate us are on the outside. And salvation is coming. That is, it's coming to us. It's promised to us. We are being saved. We will be saved. And then he says, it's only a little while. When we're in eternity from now, our trials, however long they are, are going to seem like a bad lesson when we're, year, when we're in, maybe, when we were five at school. That's how distant. It's going to be more distant than that. We won't even be able to remember it. And hearing that doesn't always help us with suffering, does it? Because if it's going on years and years, we're like, oh, this just seems actually like an eternity. Thank you. I'm not sure about the rest of it, but this is feeling pretty awful. And I guess that's why it's sometimes uh, referred to like childbirth. Because I imagine when you're giving birth, it feels like an eternity. You know, particularly a first baby day of, you know, can be sometimes a couple of days can feel like eternity, can't it? Oh, when is this going to be over? And as a sense, you just want to give up and you've got that evil midwife beating you, going, keep going, and you're like, I don't want to... You know, you've watched one born every minute. (laughs) But it's nothing, everybody tells me, that is nothing, Louise, when you've got the baby in your hands. That eternity felt, well, forget that, whatever, You have got this baby. And that's just a glimpse, isn't it, of what our sufferings are going to be like compared to an eternity with God. 
But we often fall down a bit when we get to the reason for pain. People often ask why, don't they? And I'm not going to give you a simple answer. We just tick a box and say, oh, well, that's okay then. Because often we are left with that. We just don't know. We know maybe the bigger picture. We can fill theology forms in. But actually it just hurts and it's not great and we don't know why. We're in a broken world and Jesus hasn't taken us out of it. And being in that broken world means we're broken, things still go wrong with our bodies, and those around us are broken. We're still surrounded by people who are sinful, who do bad things, who hurt us, who wreck our world, we're part of it. And the bigger picture, that our world is in desperate need of Jesus. But um, Peter does give us an option. He is not the end of everything, but he gives us a reason. And that is found just after the bit about trials, verse 7 onwards. And he talks about how these trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in the praise, glory and honour when Jesus is revealed. We've got real hope, haven't we? Jesus is going to be revealed. God has promised us that he will work in all things for good. That is, not that he will make those things good, but out of it, he will bring good. In the messiest, most horrible situation we can possibly imagine ourselves in, God has promised that he will bring good. And if we stand firm in these trials, we give glory to Jesus. Our faith, not just about what God can give us now, that we can have an easy life, that everything's good for us, but it's something bigger, that we've trusted him in the most difficult parts of our lives. And Jesus says that this is worth more to him than gold, that we are willing to trust him. And obedience in trials, I think, is when we really see what our faith really is, the real faith for real life. It's when we ask questions about, well, who is this God I worship? When we lie awake at night, worrying ourselves silly, when we're lost in grief, And here we find ourselves turning to God, seeking his assurance. We need to be asking, well, who am I asking assurance of? Who am I seeking at this point? What am I hoping for? You see, a belief in Jesus we've made up is not going to stand up. If we've made Jesus into somebody who we uh, negotiate with and we say, oh, please, if I plead hard enough, will you do that for me? Then that's going to fall down. That's not a real Jesus, is it? It'd be a bit like the Israelites setting up a golden calf and giving it the same name as God. But actually, a golden calf can't do anything. We need to be really sure through our Bibles, through teaching, through talking, through knowing, through wrestling, 
who God is. So that in those moments where our life is not great, we know who we're clinging to. Um, I was swimming this week, I thought about this. And um, I don't know about you, but when you're swimming, you kind of got half an hour. And you can do one or two things. You can count the lengths. So you're going one, one, one. And you're continually trying to remember what length you're on. Or you can forget about that and you can do something else. You can think about life. And um, I was quite worried this week. I had a few kind of, well, for the last few weeks, I had a few kind of worries. And um, I was worrying um, about um, a person and um, just someone I'm so passionate about and yet feel that I can't really do anything. It's completely out of my hands. And um, I was sort of swimming away, thinking about this. And suddenly that revelation came to me that actually God loves this person way more than I do. Uh, And it's simple things like that, isn't it? Wrestling while we're swimming, thinking, oh, I'm in such a state, I'm in such a state, that our faith is proved genuine, that we suddenly think, actually, that makes a really big difference to me because my stress levels went down to a peace level as I knew that whatever happened to that person, God loves them far more than I ever could. And he had them. And, and it's those sort of small things, I think, that can help us at that point. Now, next week, we're going to do the therefore of verse 13. So he's going to give us loads of stuff about, well, what does that practically look like? But um, let's just finish now by just spending a few moments just bringing ourselves before God. Maybe we've got difficulties in our lives. We've got trials that I can't even begin to get my head around. But I do know that everybody's trial causes them immense grief. And that God is in that. He cares. So let's just spend some time now coming before him.